0: The Radical Secular Podcast A demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com For articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes Support us on Patreon, and follow us on social media
1: Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Okipinti. Today, we're going to talk about Facebook. And frankly, we have no choice but to talk about Facebook. Last week, the biggest scandal in Facebook history broke in three brutal strikes. Strike one on Sunday, October 3rd, 2021, CBS 60 Minutes aired a segment with Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, who is a total and complete badass, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Strike two, Facebook DNS info was wiped off the internet, causing a six hour global outage. And strike three, Francis Haugen testified in front of a Senate committee hearing filled with bipartisan outrage. So we're going to get into all of that in detail. In our news segment, we'll talk about the stupid game of debt ceiling chicken going on in <laughs> Washington, or that's <laughs> still going on. It's not going to go on another two months or so. And then we've got subpoena coladas being served up by the January 6th <laughs> committee, and the generally lawless and fascist response coming from Trump world. And also a very very dangerous situation developing in Taiwan. Yeah. And, <laughs> finally, we have the smoking gun from anti-fascist activist Jim Stewartson on the connection between the Summit Lighthouse slash Church Universal and Triumphant, yes, that is the cult I grew up in, and General Michael Flynn and the QAnon Crazies. Wow. You do not want to miss that story. It's absolutely wild, trust me. But first, I want to remind you, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. And please head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the radical secular. We'd really appreciate your support, even if it's just buying us a cup of coffee every month. We have support tiers from $3 a month on up, New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. So let's get into our t-shirts. Joe, what have you got?
2: This is a weird one, but I had to do it.
1: So <laughs> I don't know if you recognize what this show this is from. That is, that is from, is it that The X-Files? Yes, The X-Files. I want so, to believe, it says, with a flying saucer. <laughs> the, reason
2: why w- yeah, the reason why I wore this one is because I think people do want to believe. They want to believe all kinds of shit because it makes them feel good or verifies their pre-existing beliefs. And we have a system now that caters completely to that. This is what the show is in part is about.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the whole Facebook thing is it's just a confirmation bias engine and that's all it does is it just gives you more of what you already want and that's why and we're going to get into this in detail but uh, that's why we are you know in this mess that we're in right now it's it's literally uh destroying the world and that's why this show is called you know the world's most dangerous and destructive organization right right i couldn't decide whether to call it dangerous or destructive so i I settled on uh destructive (laughs) (laughs) but in the in that same vein my shirt says Hail Sagan. (laughs) And this is kind of twofold because it has um, relevance sort of to that and to some of the the very famous quote from Sagan that he wrote in Demon Haunted World back in the 90s, talking about the the kind of world we would live in if people did exactly what we've done. And so that is um, appropriate there. And it's also, this is appropriate to the other story about Michael Flynn, who's being accused of being satanic Right. And so the, the just wait for it. You, you guys will love this. But um, first, we're going to talk about the news. Let's uh, do it. OK, so the debt ceiling is the major uh, crisis story in Washington this week. And former President Trump has been actively pressuring the GOP to crash the U.S. economy during these debt ceiling uh, negotiations, fight, whatever you want to call it. Uh, nothing really surprises us anymore about Trump, but he's once again put his own personal hatred and political vendetta against Democrats ahead of the actual U.S. economy, which he so claimed to love. Hmm. So it's it's a level of pettiness that's just hard to even comprehend, let alone describe. However, in the end, 11 Republicans stood with Democrats to break the filibuster on Thursday and send a $480 billion short-term debt ceiling increase to the floor for a vote, which passed 50 to 48 along party lines. What this means, though, is that we have to repeat this entire drama again in December. Uh, Trump accused Mitch McConnell of folding to the Democrats, which is really curious because this vote was just about keeping the lights on and paying for money that had already been authorized to be spent. So I don't know how it's become controversial in the Republican Party to keep the government running. It's just pure sabotage.
2: Well, you know, this brings back how it all started with um, really with the new Gingrich uh, movement, you know, back in mm-hmm. the nineties and how they really made this a seminal issue for the Republicans and for libertarians. And, you know, ostensibly their, their, their goal was to get government spending under control, which is always their, you know, one of their key mantras. But real, what it's really done is caused a lot of government uh, dysfunction no. and and also economic dysfunction because every single time this happens it it, it creates ripples across the economy and and and, um, if there's always that potential this could go so far as to really you know impact the economy in a very very significant way it's a very real potential
1: well, that's why it's, it's it's springsmanship, it's debt chicken, it's all of those things. And um, it, it's really, really destructive. And of course, we know that when Republicans are in power, they do the exact opposite and they spend money on whatever they want to spend it on, and including tax cuts, the military, none of those things. Nobody ever asks how to pay for those things, right? They only ask how to pay for things if they help the American people, and that's the problem right. with this party. That says it's a party of feudalism. This is a party that just does not care and and doesn't want to spend a dime to help the American people. Well, and of
2: course, this is all past due spending, right? This is all this is all this is the bill from that spending has happened previously to this, which they're completely implicated in, right? They're the ones that actually went on a shopping spree and. Now it's it's time to pay the bill and they're saying, oh, we're not going to pay it. You know, that's an oversimplification. But
1: no, this is but this is their game. Their game is just to constantly keep Democrats in a squeeze play whenever and whenever there's anything, any measure that actually helps the American people. It's like, oh, it's going to bust the budget. We're going to all we're all going to hell in a handbasket is their, you know, is their thing.
2: Well, there's that radical rhetorical, you know, strategy. But there's also the idea that they really just have a scorched earth policy. When it comes to power, they don't really care about the damage it's causing people, even their own constituency. Uh, oftentimes, uh, what they really, what they really want to do in their logic is to to gain go back get back in power to have as much power as possible, which means that comes first. Discrediting the Democrats, weakening them is job one. Is you know even w- uh, when Obama was in power, the the Republicans stated right off the bat. They just wanted to do whatever it took to make sure he was a one term president.
1: And yeah, that's the same logic. Thing. Same logic. Well, and what's going on here is we've got this difficult situation of these two senators, uh, uh, Joe Manchin and Chris- Kirsten Cinema, who are just not playing ball with the Democrats. And they're making lo- this much harder than it has to be. And Manchin. Of course, this week, you know, accused both sides of playing politics, right. and we always know what it means when someone says both sides. It means they're taking the worst side against the best side every single time. and manchin is he's barely a Democrat. he If he's not a dino, I don't know who is. and he, he <laughs> right. gave us control of the Senate, but he won't let us use it. And at this point, he might as well be Mitch McConnell and you know, Of course, as we grow tired of repeating here on this show, this is yet another reason to get rid of the filibuster. And right. after this whole exercise, Chuck Schumer got up and he rightfully burned Republicans to the ground for their tactics in a floor speech after the vote. And he's gotten a lot of criticism for that speech, even from among Democrats, which... Don't get me started about our fucking tone policing idiots on the democratic side right i mean this is they are using these scorched earth tactics that they've been using since 2009 to just destroy every time a democrat gets in power and you know mitch mcconnell this is rich for his part has now written a letter to president biden saying that because of schumer's speech that he's not going to help the democrats next time well i mean he's the source of the problem in the first place and so he's like saying, I'm never going to help you people solve the problem I created ever again, you know, it's just, right. it's well, they do this because it works,
2: right? They muddle the issues. They muddle the the power dynamics purposefully because they don't want, they are the bad guys. They are the, the, the you know, the people that are holding back, you know, salaries and, and, and the government functioning and, uh, you know, benefits for people and all that stuff. They are the ones that are doing it. So they have to obscure it. Otherwise, you know, even a lot of people in their own basic eventually say, "Why well, this, you know, the emperor has no clothes.
1: Well, the thing that happens is, is they manage to do this game of chicken. So um, they have so much practice doing this that somehow their people always end up getting funded. Even if, the, even if they, they, they stamp their feet and they shake their heads and they, and they throw a tantrum, the funding go, end, ends up going through. And uh, but Democrats never get credit for that. Yeah, a, a, a among their constituency, so it's just nuts. I I don't want to spend too much more time on this because we have a, a lot of other sure. stuff. The the subpoena colada story is really sure. is really really good, um, and that is okay. So we've got a whole group of people who have now who were involved in we know they were involved in planning the January sixth insurrection, and they've now been subpoenaed. I believe there were 11 subpoenas that went out and and there had already been four before. So I want to read this from Roll Call. It says, members of Women for America First, the group that organized the January 6th rally at the Ellipse, are named, including Amy Kramer and Kylie Kramer, both of whom are founders and Cynthia Chaffian, who submitted the first permit application on behalf of the group. Katrina Pearson, a former Trump campaign official, is among the group of 11 who are required to produce documents and testify in a deposition. Carolyn Wren, listed as a VIP advisor for the January 6th rally, Maggie Mulvaney, named as VIP lead on the permit documentation, Justin Capralli of Event Strategies Incorporated, listed as project manager, Tim Unz, also of Event Strategies, who was referred to as the stage manager, Megan Powers of Empowers Consulting, operations manager, Hannah Salem of Salem Strategies, operations manager, Lyndon Lyndon Brentnall of RMS Protective Services is referred to as the rally's on-site supervisor, and of course, the four that were previously subpoenaed: Mark Meadows, uh, White House Chief of Staff Dan Scavino, the White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications Kashyap Patel, a Pentagon official, and Stephen Bannon, a former White House advisor. So, Trump is telling all these guys not to participate, and he's telling them to break the law and. You know, Republicans are just calling the hearings a partisan charade. And, you know, this is hearings about where they tried to overthrow the U.S. government. And right. <laughs> so, well, I mean, it, it's not surprising that Republicans
2: are taking that stance whatsoever. I mean, that's what they've been doing. It's their modus operandi here. But what's surprising to me more is that, they're, like you said earlier, Sean, is that the Democrats are still tone policing. They're still not really responding as they should to this threat because, I mean, it was an insurrection. And, I mean, we, we impeached the president for lying about a sexual liaison in the 1990s. Yeah. Right? And, and this is orders of magnitude more severe than that. I mean, it's not even in the same... Not not the same ballpark. It's not in the same planet. Right. And yet and yet, you know, it's is they're acting as if this is some procedural
1: event or something. If we can't convict Trump and his cronies of treason for an insurrection, then there's no point even having that definition in the Constitution of treason. There's no there's no point. It's meaningless. Well, Well, it speaks
2: to what's happening today what the power situation is who has power and who doesn't the reason why these people aren't being held to task whether not being held accountable for such a heinous act is because of power they have the power to block it
1: yeah and they don't care about the country or law or anything else like that clearly not I'm really pissed. I mean, I'm just I'm just uh, I don't know if it's coming through here, but I'm really pissed. And uh, because Democrats are not on the war footing that they need to be. We have just over a year left of congressional control before, you know, the House potentially goes to Republicans. If that happens, if we don't take these main criminal right wing actors down before that happens, you know, that needs to become a major issue in these congressional campaigns because it does. If we lose the house,
2: look, it doesn't bode well historically. If you look at history, like I mean, the classic example, of course, is the Weimar Republic in Germany. Hitler was not held accountable, as he should have been, and his party was not held accountable for their misdeeds. And then ultimately they came back in power and we had what we had with World War II and the Holocaust and just this catastrophic period of human history. And there's many examples of that. If people are not held accountable, they just imp- it empowers them,
1: and yeah. they can you know that's as simple as that. Well, I want to place a clip now because and we haven't done this before actually on this show uh, playing clips, but I think we're mm-hmm. going to start doing more of that. And that is, I have here, Lincoln Project co-founder and former Republican strategist Rick Wilson, and he does not mince words about this situation. So let's take a look at this clip. Let's do
0: it. I am hearing from multiple people now that the subpoenas are not going to be enforced, that the commission is basically going to slow roll the entire thing, um, and that they're not going to take it seriously. If you don't enforce the subpoenas, if you don't enforce the subpoenas, hang it up now. Just declare Trump's president again and tell Steve Bannon he can be the emperor of the fucking right-wing universe and let it all go. If you're not serious about it, if you're going to play fuck around with it, if you're going to bring in a bunch of soft-handed academic, you know, bullshit about it and talk about the causes of radicalization, get the fuck out of here. These are criminals who tried to overthrow the United States government. They conspired to try to overthrow the United States government. And for the Democrats on the committee in the leadership side who are telling people that this is, the, they want to get this over with. What the hell is wrong with you? These people wanted to kill you. They came to murder you. They would have dragged you out into the street and stomped you to death. And if you don't punish them and investigate them and bring them to justice, they'll do it again. A coup attempt that is not punished is a training exercise. So look, this is one of the things I, I at the Lincoln Project we're really we're really focused on right now is the fact, that you know, our friends of the Democratic Party often say, "Oh, we've got this. We understand how to do this. It's okay. It's fine. Don't worry. You know, you guys don't have to. We don't. We don't need the hard edge yard dogs like you guys all the time." Well, guess what? You do. You do. You know why? Because in Virginia, you're tied in a race where you should be stomping the living shit out of Trump's candidate. In Virginia, you've got a candidate, Glenn Youngkin, goes on Seb Gorka's neo-Nazi white power radio hour. And the Democrats are not stomping the fuck out of him right now, every day, every single person talking about it. Are you insane? You've got this one six commission where you are clearly not playing by the same rules that they're playing by. They're going to, the Republicans are going to delay, they're going to vamp, they're going to try to make this thing into a a, a giant chaos shit show to get away from justice. You you subpoena these guys and then you say, we're not going to enforce the subpoenas and you don't bring down the full fucking weight and, and fury you're not only doing you're not only really making a, a tactical political mistake, you're making a fundamental constitutional mistake by pissing away power that the constitution gives to congress. If you will not aggressively investigate and hold people to account who are who attempted to overthrow the United States government in a violent coup, then fuck it, go home. Fuck it, resign today and just burn the building down on your way out because that's what's going to happen. These people will be back. They will do worse than they did before, they will, they will be empowered, they will be, they will be enthusiastic, and you know what, you're setting the grounds for all the shenanigans to continue, for the voter fraudits to continue, for all this bullshit in the states, for these guys to turn it into a giant culture war. Get your shit together, pull your heads out of your asses, do not treat this like something, it's just a delay so you can go back to talking about the infrastructure bill and healthcare. Are you insane? Get your shit together. You must, you must, you must treat the 1-6 Commission as it should be, like a law enforcement and counterterrorism operation. You must bring these people into the spotlight. You must embrace the spectacle. You must eat up all the time and scenery and daylight to show who they are to the American people. All right, folks. Happy Friday other than that. Yeah. I mean, he
2: couldn't have said it better. I do think it's that serious. I think that if we don't take a war footing with us like and make this a real prosecution of what happened. We're fucked. We are completely. completely. One way or another, they will be this will just create a resurgence of the same shit.
1: They're playing for keeps. These people are fascists. There was a video that was played on OAN. And by the way, it just broke in the last few days that AT&T has been heavily funding OAN from the very beginning with Direct TV subscriptions. And that network would not exist without AT&T. And AT&T specifically said that they wanted another conservative alternative network. And you know what just aired on that network? Was a man, I don't know if this was an advertisement or if this was a news anchor, because I don't watch that channel, but this man basically said that, if he said basically what happens to the people who conducted this voter fraud what happens to the people who prevented Trump from being the legitimately elected president of the United States he says we used to have a punishment for that we'd round them all up and execute them this is what this man said and i i could find that clip too but the point is is we don't need to know what these people want to do and we don't know need to we don't need to wonder Uh, what their intentions are. They have made their intentions clear. They have no uh, respect for the law whatsoever. And they wanna burn this nation to the ground and take over and turn it into a fascist dictatorship. That's the plan. And let's
2: not forget, this is a white power movement. It's not even a white nationalist movement or a white supremacist movement. It's a white power movement. It is about power. It's about taking power, taking control and controlling everyone else. Right. I mean, you can you uh, it's one thing to believe you're superior. It's another thing to celebrate it. It's a whole other ball of wax to seek power under under those bases. It really is. And we are not serving anyone by letting this go by, you know, slapping a wrist. I am uh, I am a very diplomatic person. I'm a teacher. I am conciliatory, but I, even me, I can see how dangerous this is. And I know we've
1: got to be tough. We've got to be as tough as necessary to stop this movement. Yeah. And well, as of our taping, just before the taping, it, it, uh, a statement came out from Liz Cheney and the committee that Congress is, in fact, definitely going to import, enforce these subpoenas But it's really unclear what that means. What are they going to do if Bannon holds up? Are they going to haul his ass to jail? Are they going to hold him in contempt of Congress? I mean, this this is, it's serious, folks. So, all right. They need to
2: send some FBI marshals and get his ass to Congress. Like, whatever it takes
1: at this point. He needs to be hauled in the dock and humiliated at this point. So, all right. Well, moving on to international news, I want to talk about Taiwan now. And we have a situation developing in Taiwan that is just not good. And again, this is something that you could miss if you weren't paying attention, but there's a number of parts to the story. First part is that a U.S. nuclear submarine had an undersea collision off the coast of Taiwan, and it was the first incident involving a U.S. nuclear sub since 2005. Now, there was about a dozen people injured, but there was no serious damage to the sub or loss of life. But the sub is now out of commission until it can be repaired. So that's who knows? Like, there's a lot of questions there. Right. I have questions. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. <laughs> but we do know that the U.S. has a small military presence of a few dozen advisors in Taiwan. And China is really pissed off about this because it considers that island to be part of its territory. And uh, uh, Defense Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian said that China will take all necessary measures to protect its sovereignty and territorial integrity. It's kind of a generic statement there. But this past week, China has sharply escalated its military presence near the island, flying over a hundred sorties with warplanes into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Uh, Taiwan's defense minister, Chu Kuo-cheng, made a statement that military tensions are at their most serious in more than 40 years. He then went on to say that China's military capacity would significantly reduce obstacles to a full-scale invasion of Taiwan within the next four years, which is really scary. Yeah. one, one piece of good news is that despite the hard rhetoric from the leadership, China seems to be working to mute the issue in social media. And President Biden is going to have a, a virtual summit meeting with President Xi before the end of the year. So this could just be saber rattling or it could be a prelude to something much worse. Um, but I want to just kind of put this in some historical perspective and highlight how dangerous the situation is because this goes all the way back to the 1970s when President Carter declared that the US would abide by this fiction called the One China Policy, in which the US would diplomatically recognize China as the government of Taiwan, while also being involved in a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. It's one of the most preposterous diplomatic dodges that I'm aware of in, in US history. If you put this in context as an analogy, imagine if during the Cold War, the US had declared itself to be the official government of Cuba and demanded that every other nation recognize that fact, including the Soviet Union. Now imagine that the Soviet Union did recognize the US as the official government of Cuba, while at the same time having a mutual aid and defense treaty with right. Cuba. And you'll get an idea about how insane this whole thing is. So, sorry, go ahead. Well,
2: um, let's not forget that Taiwan was a part of China, like until the Kuomintang retreated there during the you know after World War II, then when they had the communists against the nationalists and so forth. And the nationalists retreated into the island and, you know, for many reasons, they kept that st- status. And um, as China, be- you know, became a world power, that status got, you know, the United States was essentially buttressing and protecting the uh, Taiwan island from China, the Chinese basically finishing their revolution and extending back into all the territory of China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since that, it's stayed a stalemate all that time, and that's why you have this bizarre diplomatic uh, you know, situation that you mentioned, Sean. And you know, it's, been, it's backed by nuclear weapons. I mean, that's ultimately what's going on here. It's, it's kind of a you know, mutual assured destruction thing here. Nobody wants to go to war because the consequences will be greater, more dire than any benefit that China could possibly gain from taking over Taiwan. And I think that's still the case, However, what, one of the other things you've got to consider is the domestic situation in China. I mean, the Chinese are very nationalistic, the people of China. They're very proud of their, of their nation. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why they muted the social media stuff, because it wouldn't take much to really create a massive response by the Chinese people at this point of, of uh, ultra nationalist response. And then the government, you know, the Chinese government is a dictatorship. They have a lot of power, but they don't have infinite power. And they do have to be mindful of the sentiments of their citizens. They really do. And they manage them for, for that reason. Well,
1: they, they certainly do manage them, Joe. And what, one of the things I was going to say about that is that, I mean, how easy would it be for them to flip a switch in their, in their social media and start pushing propaganda out that would then get people all whipped up into this, you know, get the hardliners talking and, and get this nationalistic frenzy going it's on. It's right there. It's, it's right, right there. there. And, and it's not like, public opinion in China is not like public opinion in the United States. They can turn it on and off when they want <laughs> because yeah. they, they just, I mean, they erase entire people in China. Right. And they, they, they like, there's a, one of the most famous uh, film stars in China has been completely erased from the internet because she right. said something wrong. So, it's really, really, um, it's not the way we think about public opinion. It's something else entirely. It's kind of, it's kind of um, they can just trot this out on command. And getting back to our current reality though, mm-hmm. uh, Taiwan holds a major portion of the world's semiconductor manufacturing, and any military conflict would therefore be absolutely catastrophic to the world and you think we have a chip shortage now. Uh, I mean, <laughs> imagine not yeah. being able to get any semiconductors out of Taiwan. Uh, and 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 so that's bad enough. But now also imagine you've got a fully democratic country of 24 million people. That's the size of Canada or Australia, okay, falling under Chinese authoritarian rule. I don't know uh, if or when this standoff will be resolved, but it's just kind of one more cloud on the horizon of an already sort of teetering world order and the loss of American power. And it's something where I've really, you know, China's now increasing its military buildup in the area. They've been doing just so much work in the South China Sea and and building these artificial islands and making territorial claims that are are in international waters. They've been really, really saber rattling. And some of the analyses that I read said that by 2025, they will have such military superiority that there's really nothing that anyone could do to stop them from taking over Taiwan?
2: Well, here's what's changed, which is really concerning, is one of the reasons why they were being sort of subdued with Taiwan is because they were trying to, they were working with Hong Kong at the time to try to woo Hong Kong to, and also woo the Taiwanese into believing that You know, we can have this kind of mixed system, capitalism here, socialism there, you know, and we can give, we can have special zones and like, like, like uh, Hong Kong was, but that's all out the window now because the Chinese have moved into Hong Kong and, and that special zone status is now pretty much gone for them, practically speaking. And so that whole logic is now
1: gone. Right. So they know uh, that, it's like it's like the Taliban coming in and taking over. I mean, with the Chinese is the minute they came into Hong Kong, they started approving who could run for election and they right. started limiting who could vote and they started shutting down newspapers and they just cracked down like you know, like the authoritarian regime that they are. And no it would be no different in Taiwan. And so now the Taiwanese know that. They've seen it and they're not going they're not
2: likely to 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 just acquiesce and, and join China like the Chinese were hoping at some point would happen. So they're going to force the issue potentially. I mean, that's one of the concerns. However, the other thing I would say is that China plays the long game. Mm-hmm. They, they play the long game, I mean, generational long game. And so I don't think they're going to rush into anything unless something there's some other crisis. Like if there's an, something that they have to distract from, That would be a possibility like some kind of terrible domestic domestic crisis like the economy collapses or something like that then hey a war would be great some something of that nature i don't really foresee china just all of a sudden unilaterally just attacking taiwan but then again Mm -hmm. i don't know
1: Well, it's a game of chicken again, right, because we're talking about they don't know what the U.S. is going to do and they have to sort of gauge their move. Is the U.S. going to be willing to go to war over Taiwan? And that's an open question. I don't know the answer to it. Right. I don't either. Okay, well, something
2: to watch, though.
1: Definitely something to watch. It's uh, May we live in interesting times is the Chinese saying or whatever. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So our next subject is Michael Flynn, the Michael Flynn situation this week that just was insane. And before I show you a clip that I'm about to show you, you need to have some background specifically as to how this is relevant to me. And of course, to our show, because we've spent about five different shows talking about The cult that I grew up in, which is called the Summit Lighthouse or Church Universal and Triumphant, and my mother was Elizabeth Clare Prophet. She's dead now. Christoph also grew up there, so this is really, really close to home. And we'll put in the show notes the five other episodes if any of you are interested in finding out a little more about this background. We've we've talked about it a lot, but imagine my surprise when I saw a post on Twitter last Tuesday from a man named Jim Stewartson. Now, he's an anti-fascist activist that I hadn't heard of before. His post had a clip from my mother from 1984, giving one of her dictations. And that in and of itself is no big deal. I used to produce those videos, so I've seen thousands of hours of that stuff. But this was a real bombshell. I'm not going to give it away because you have to see it to believe it. So I'm going to play this clip and we can talk about it afterward. And before I play the clip, I'm also going to play you a short video from Michael Flynn to show you the event he was at and the kind of rhetoric that he was, that he was using before he gave this, this prayer, okay? Now, I wanna say something also about Jim Stewartson. This guy is great. He scours the internet and he monitors right-wing media to a level that I hadn't thought possible. And it's hard to stomach some of this right-wing stuff, so kudos to him for doing it. And I'm not sure how he found what he found in terms of this Michael Flynn clip, but just take a look and listen.
3: And that's why I know that no way in the world did the American people vote for any of this. And that's why I believe Donald J. Trump is still our president. It's the way it is.
2: I am present. I am here, O oh God, and I am the instrument of those sevenfold rays and archangels.
3: We are your instrument of those sevenfold rays and all your archangels, all of them.
2: And I will not retreat. I will take my stand. I will not dare to speak, and I will be the instrument of God's will, whatever
1: it is.
3: We will not retreat. We will not retreat. We will stand our ground. We will not fear to speak. We will be the instrument of your will. Whatever it is.
2: Here I am, so help me, God, in the name of Archangel Michael and his legions. I am freeborn, and I shall remain freeborn, and I shall not be enslaved by any foe within or without.
3: In your name, name. and the name of your legions, legions. we are are freeborn, and we shall remain freeborn. And we shall not be enslaved enslaved. by any foe, foe. within or without. without. So help me God. God God bless you. God bless America. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. before I say anything, Joe, I want to get your reaction to that clip.
2: (sighs) Wow. (laughs) Oh wow! I'm kind of speechless. Um, how? Can, what else can you say about where we're at? Right. I mean, this figure, this national figure, Michael Flynn, who is now representing, you know, the cult that you grew up in, in a very, you know, mirroring the the words from your mom. It must be quite something to, to watch this for you. I, I, I know that's a different issue, but uh, <laughs> it's, I don't even know how to even interpret that one. I, I don't know how you deal with it, but, but I'm well, sure you have. I'm sure you've come to terms with it in your life.
1: Yeah, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's like, that's what I said. For me, it's no big deal. I've watched thousands of hours of this yeah. stuff, and it's just, of course, whacked and weird when you first watch it, and when it just comes out of left field, it's gonna sound completely freaky if you've never been exposed to anything like that. <laughs> but it does show the continuity.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. of
1: this movement the
2: continuity and that and that's what people have to understand this is not something that's just popped into existence
1: right right yeah. right i mean it's, it's 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 there is a um well i'm gonna go i'm gonna go into there's a lot to unpack uh it's probably gonna be about 10 minutes long but i i need to get all of this on tape so people understand What are the theological implications of this so-called prayer? Because if you didn't grow up with this, you have no idea what is being said there. Well, one of the things
2: I want to mention first, if you don't mind, sure, is I was just reading an article. This reminds me of just a couple days ago about how uh, Ghana is cracking down on the uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender community, like in a big way, right? And that those laws are being inspired by a group from the United States and Russia, they have come together, the world, I think, uh, family federation or something like that. Yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, and it's the same kind of phenomena, the same sentiments, the same energy, the same strategies, the same goals. And, And in that regard, and many other places in the world, it's manifesting in severe human repression.
1: Well, this is it. Okay. And this is, this is what I, how I want to explain all of this and why it's so dangerous. And this is why I've actually been speaking out for 20 years since I left that cult. It's been more than, more than 20 years now. It's been more close to like 25 years, but um, this is really, really insidious. And when you look at it, it's now a global battle. Like you said, it's taking place in Ghana. The, the, it, a few years back, it was Uganda and these Christian missionaries and, and Russia is, is definitely involved and the group, the family that was talked about by Jeff Charlotte, is, is, they're the ones who run the National Prayer Breakfast, and they have definitely made big inroads into Russia. They're, they are very, very much enmeshed with the Republican Party. And, and QAnon, is all. this is all just offshoots of the same power organization. Okay. So what I want to say here, people don't understand this. No matter how many times I say it, they still don't get it. But I'm really going to go into it deep here because fascism and religion come from the exact same human impulse, which is combination of purity, authority, and hierarchy. And by the way, the, the purest form of religious purification, which can also be thought of as cultural purification, always comes through violence. And this goes from, it runs all the way back as a thread through history, from the Crusades, to the Third Reich, to radical Islam, to Christian abortion bombers, and various uh, you know white Christian nationalist terrorists. and. I figured this out a long time ago when a light bulb went on, when I came out of the church, that religion and fascism are absolutely interrelated. They are the same impulse. One concerns the church and one concerns the state. Put the two together and you get fascism and it's just explosively dangerous because God is always a force multiplier for any cause among believers. This goes all the way back to some of what you'll read in anthropological history. I'm sure we could have to ask your wife (laughs) about this, right? (laughs) Sure. I'd love to have her on the show, by the way. Yeah but you know when 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 there are civilizations of more than a million people they always invent angry and punitive gods and you've all know a harari talks about this in homo deus how religion was necessary to establish human cooperation and it's the shared belief in a shared story that makes people feel invincible so let me read this quote from my mother again that was used by general michael Flynn, because i really want people to understand why this is so deadly okay so it goes and i am the instrument of those sevenfold rays and archangels and I will not retreat. I will take my stand. I will not fear to speak, and I will be the instrument of God's will, whatever it is. Here I am, so help me God. In the name of Archangel Michael and his legions, I am freeborn, and I shall remain freeborn, and I shall not be enslaved by any foe within or without. Okay, so this seems kind of like just a generic prayer, prayer of liberation. It's not really clear what it means, so I want to break it down from what I know from my experience of growing up with all this. First of all, what are the sevenfold rays in archangels? Well, archangels are a Catholic concept. And also, you know, belief in angels goes generally goes way back, probably before Christianity, maybe even into prehistory with nature spirits. Basically, angels are spiritual beings that are representatives of God. And certainly they are beings who have some supernatural power. Maybe they're kind of a legion who are commanded by divine superheroes. You know, angels, they're (laughs) kind of like troops. You can think of them. They're not gods themselves. They're more like subservient spiritual soldiers, because remember, heaven is organized like a very strict hierarchy under God. And as as I was always told growing up, order is heaven's first law. How fascist is that? Right. We will have order. We'll make the trains run on time. Right. So archangels sort of follow the military paradigm. They're the warriors, the generals. Archangel Michael carries a huge sword. He's often depicted slaying the devil or demons, pouring out vials of plagues on the earth. He's also seen in some circles as a protector. People in my church would say intense prayers to Archangel Michael for like an hour, even longer, before doing anything dangerous or if they were scared. All right, so here's some context to Archangel Michael. In the Pantheon of Ascended Masters, Archangels might be thought of as sort of, they're not really grunts because they're great, they're big and they're like generals, but they're also, um, I didn't ever get the feeling that they were making a lot of the decisions. There were higher orders of masters called Chohans and then Elohim, and then what were called cosmic beings, and the cosmic beings might not even come from this galaxy. And I'm, I'm telling you, this shit is like as real as a movie if you believe in it. People I grew up with were living in that movie. They would literally think that they could see and feel these masters and that they really physically intervened in their lives. But just to finish up really quick with how this cosmology works, there were seven of each master, Archangel, Chohan, and Elohim, and each was split into two halves, a male and a female counterpart. These were called twin flames. And there's a total of 42 main masters and we, we knew all of their names and we sang songs and we prayed to all of them. And those were just the main ones. There were also five secret rays, okay? Presumably, each of those rays also had the same complement of masters. We just didn't know what their names were. All right, so with that background, here's what the person is saying. They're saying, I am the instrument of those sevenfold rays and archangels. So they're saying that they are subservient to the masters of all those rays, right? But here's where it gets tricky, because in the teachings of the ascended masters, there's kind of a prime directive, and that is this, that masters and God are all powerful, but they cannot intervene in the affairs of earth unless a human being requests it all right? Because that would violate human free will. So, in our church, this was the purpose of prayer. It was literally going along with the biblical edict from Isaiah 45, which says, command ye me. In other words, God is asking human beings to tell him what to do, literally. And this is where it gets super convoluted and dangerous. So, the next lines are, and I will not retreat, I will take my stand, I will not fear to speak, and I will be the instrument of God's will, whatever it is. So, I, I want to, I like, Are people out there getting this? The purpose of human prayer is to command God so that God can send his masters and angels to intervene, right? But here's the double bind humans are supposed to be commanding God through prayer, but they are also commanding God to do his own will, which seems circular and ridiculous, right? Why do humans need to command the archangels and the chohans and the Elohim to do things if these masters already know the will of God? And the answer is they don't. (laughs) Humans can't possibly know the will of God and God already knows what he's supposed to do, but he can't do it supposedly until he's asked by humans who really have no idea what he wants. It's, this is crazy making, it's thought stopping and paralyzing. And if you listen to that line, I will be the instrument of God's will, whatever it is. See the infinite feedback loop. It's, this is like sending a computer into divide by zero error. It either stays in an infinite loop because it keeps trying and it can't get a result or it traps, traps the error and then crashes. And I, I really couldn't think of a better metaphor than that, but what I'm getting at is through this belief system, a person is made suggestible to whatever some human person in power tells them to do. So realize this chant, this prayer is building people up and putting them into an absolutely inflexible state. They're way past the point of reason, they're way past the point of conversation or any debate or any external intervention at all. We've, we've, we know these people, we've seen them. This was the January 6th mob. This is all the people threatening school boards. This is people harassing others who are getting vaccinated. Depending on what they want, this sort of messianic determination where they feel caught up in the group and they're so reinforced and locked into their rightness that they have nothing left to lose. We've seen it. We know what this is and we know how dangerous it is. So she says, I will not retreat. I will take my stand. I will not fear to speak. What is their stand? They don't really know because they don't know the will of God. It's inscrutable. It's opaque. It's impenetrable. So all some human power broker has to do now is come along and tell them what God's will is. And of course, that concept is a thousand percent political. God's will is whatever the cult yeah. leader says it is, right? I mean, you know, so people people in my parents' organization would have done anything my parents told them to do. So that's why, that's why I and I and I watched them do it, and that's why I know how scary this is. So You've put these people into the suggestive state where they believe they have the backing of Archangel Michael and his legions and all the Chohans and Elohim. And that's the final part of the prayer. Here I am, so help me God. In the name of Archangel Michael and his legions, I am freeborn and I shall remain freeborn and I shall not be enslaved by any foe within or without. So, right, I am freeborn. What does that mean? It means whatever this thing is that they are worked up about now has attained the level of a birthright. Now, uh, uh, this is a birthright like citizenship. Imagine if someone tried to strip away your citizenship. How hard would you fight against that? Maybe to the death. So that's what's going on here is that everyone's desire for a literal birthright freedom is being hijacked to some purpose. What is that purpose? It's their desire to do God's will, which they've now decided gives them the power of archangels to implement that will. They believe that they have the backing of cosmic superheroes. Now, we know that Freedom in the American context has been completely tainted into this libertarian, feudalistic, white Christian nationalism thing. And this kind of prayer with its hypnotizing effect is basically how you get people to die for that cause. So the last line, though, is the most chilling. I shall not be enslaved by any foe within or without. And we can understand the foe without part, right? I mean, that means any exterior person, a government, a judge, academic, scientific authority. They're not going to listen to any of those people. But what is the foe within? The foe within literally refers to someone's own conscience. And this is sometimes referred to in Church Universal and Triumphant as the dweller on the threshold. And what that means is any interior forces of doubt or fear or hesitation to commit to the cause, any resistance to total surrender. So that last line is basically the total surrender of a person's identity to the sense of being the instrument of the sevenfold rays and archangels. That person is now submitting themselves to an unknown will of God, which as I discussed before, It's this null space for a suggestion from a human cult leader or a political leader. They're making this affirmation that they are going to follow that will and that cause to free themselves from whatever it is they consider to be enslavement in spite of any external or internal forces and in spite of any rule of law or norms of civilized behavior. So (laughs) that was a lot, but...
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I, I can't speak to that Christian pantheon, I don't know it as, nearly as well as you do, but I will say there's a reason why, you know, it, it, a few centuries ago we had the Age of Enlightenment, and <laughs> why, why we separated church and state, because that was the power back then, it was divine rights of kings, and the idea was, no matter what, is you want, to, you want to separate, you want to divorce that form of political power from religion because it is incredibly destructive. That's where that, that idea came from. It didn't come out of the blue, it came out of the real life experience of people of, of that age. You know, the philosophers that, that spoke about it and, and, and then the, the, the founders of the constitutions that, that enshrined it into law and here and in France and many other places. And they were coming from a place of absolute abject fear. Of the power of theocracy, because they lived it and they experienced it, and so we in the modern world, in advanced industrialized countries, have never really experienced that threat directly, until, except for here and there. Like certainly in the United States, it was we uh, African Americans certainly experienced it, right? But you know there, there are exceptions to that rule, but. Normally speaking, the average American just has no idea, no concept of what we're talking about. So I'm glad that you shared a little bit of that because, the, you know, you're really start, trying, starting to elucidate what it really means to, to worry about this stuff and what, what, what theocracy really means here. Theocracy is about
1: power, right? Control. Alt- it's a hundred percent about power and control. And I literally grew up with this shit. I mean, I grew up with people who would have died for my parents. Okay? I mean, that's just, that's just a reality.
2: Yeah, it's very powerful stuff at a psychological level. I mean, people will fight for it for the, to the death. People will put aside their conscience for it. People will dehumanize others for it. People will be brutal for it. I mean because it's so powerful and when you have it's one thing if it's just here and there and there's like little clumps of it here and there and and like a lot of uh, you know um, secular societies but when you start to systematize it and push it and you start to create this this sort of engine that feeds it like we have in this country now that's the danger and that's why that's why when you say there's this parallels to fascism that's what you're talking about right there.
1: Well, it, it, you know, if, if people can pull off this kind of psychological manipulation on a, on a large scale, it's a recipe for utter bugfuck madness. I mean, just, just total madness. And when QAnon starts using those tactics, we are very far down that slippery slope toward building a mass messianic movement. And you and I both know what happened the last time we saw a mass messianic movement.
2: Yeah. Well, and know you think about it too. People will say it's not that bad. People, these people are just people. Well, they are just people. They're humans. But you know what? They, they, you cannot. This is not a, uh, you know, a dualistic thing. It's not pure evil or pure good. This is not the Lord of the Rings. Okay, this is real life. Right. And like you look at, you look at ISIS. ISIS has benevolent societies that help people, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know they, they do good things too. Like it, it, you have, we have to see this as a human thing, not a not as some kind of like cosmic
1: fight. Like they would see it, we don't want to see it that way. But. No. Well, what, what you have to understand is that um, we see the results. We see these people screaming outside of school board meetings. We see these people whipped up into this frenzy where they're willing to literally destroy our government. And that is that is what you do. You know, people. I tried for years after getting out of my cult to make people understand how dangerous this was because of what I saw, because after all, what did my parents actually get people to do? They got them to spend, you know, five or more years of their lives building bomb shelters and stockpiling weapons and food underground. We're talking about, you know, tens of millions of dollars that were spent, okay? So these people didn't die. They didn't give their lives in sense of losing their lives, but they gave their lives entirely to this this messianic idea that we were gonna survive a nuclear war, okay? And so when I see this now coming out, you know, <laughs> nearly 40 years later, okay, um, and injecting itself now into our national politics, I'm ashamed and horrified and that something so deadly and psychologically destructive can be coming out again, you know, and, and, and coming to national prominence. It's just, Ah, uh, right. I mean, it, it, it's,
2: it's, you know, just heartbreaking. But, you know, the thing people have to realize is that it's not that, that everyone that's religious is going to be like this or think like this. I think that I've seen studies that show maybe 6 to 10% of the population in the United States is, has this messianic kind of ideology. But there's a lot of complacency around everyone else and, and a lot of accepting of this and, and minimizing it. And not and thinking it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal because it doesn't take that many
1: people. Here's what you have to think about, and that is, I. Th- th- it's interesting you brought up six percent because six percent is also the number of Americans who will actually acknowledge that they have Nazi views, and that's yeah. 19, that's 19 million people. Okay, so that's a lot of people with, with you know to be Nazis or fundamentalists, uh, you know, uh, crazies, and th- it doesn't. They seed larger action within the population. And once people start to observe that going on, then you get, these movements can build and it doesn't take much. That's a good way of putting it. They do seed larger action, right? They are the
2: sort of the, the vanguard of, of, of powerful change potentially.
1: Yeah. And you know, I mean, all I can say is you live long enough, you see some crazy shit, but what I really want to, the story has a funny ending because as scary as this whole concept sounds and, and, and I, I, you should be scared. Okay. You, You really should be scared. Uh, but it, the whole thing did backfire badly on Michael Flynn. And here's why, because the Christians have a huge antipathy for theosophical occult-type religions, such as the IM movement or the Church Universal and Triumphant. And this goes all the way back to the 70s and 80s when my parents were trying to grow their cult. And they ran up against this buzzsaw of opposition from fundamentalist Christians who saw the ascended master religions as satanic. We used to have protesters picketing her lectures and things like that. And so it's still a thing, apparently. They all still think this is satanic. So. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black, though. You put up doctrines like the resurrection or transubstantiation, let alone all the crazy stuff Mormons believe, or QAnon against the cosmology of ascended masters, and it's not all that clear whose religion is crazier. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're all full of shit, but you know, it's and it's hard to believe that these details matter to them, but they really do. And the reason they do is because doctrinal purity is all about political power. It's about excluding, including and excluding. And So I want to I want to read, though, uh, some of the reaction from the Christians to this to this revelation about General Flynn. Uh, And this is from Rick Wiles. He's a he's an extreme anti-Semitic Florida pastor who runs a conspiracy theory outlet called True News. This is from an article in the Daily Beast. And he seized on Flynn's prayer in a nearly hour long True News broadcast last month, blasting the retired lieutenant general. While Wiles' co-host claims that the mention of rays and legions demonstrated Flynn was praying to the devil, Wiles said that Flynn was threatening his followers' souls. My advice to you is to separate from General Michael Flynn, Wiles told his audience. I don't care about politics. I care about your soul, right? Right. The satanic panic sparked by Flynn's prayer bears more than a passing similarity to the Flynn-endorsed QAnon movement in which figures like Hillary Clinton, George Soros, and Barack Obama have been accused of being cannibalistic Satanists or, in QAnon parlance, Luciferians. It also recalls Pizzagate, the baseless conspiracy theory once endorsed by Flynn's son, Michael Flynn Jr., which holds that a Washington pizzeria doubles as a satanic sex dungeon for pedophiles. So this goes on and on and on here but <laughs> they talk about it being the it bearing a striking resemblance to my mom's prayer and they you know but but Flynn is is definitely he's getting he's getting kind of banned in those circles he's he's getting shunned and it's hilarious because these conspiracy folks and religious people tend to eat their own but i want to stress here that the fact that these controversies often drift into self parody doesn't make any of these ideologies any less dangerous and that's the nature of fascism. It constantly morphs and shifts and changes and flirts with the absurd. Then the question always becomes, is this a joke or is this super fucking dangerous, like Peppy the Frog or some other obscure fascist meme? You never know what's going to be discredited as farce, like Michael Flynn, or function effectively as a recruiting tool. And while you're busy trying to figure out whether some fascist maniac is too preposterous to be taken seriously, you'll find throngs of people clamoring to follow that person over the cliff of insanity. So I don't know what else to say. This is kind of a sign of the times. Some kind of critical mass of insanity really does seem to be taking shape here. Yeah, it is,
2: and I don't think it's time to like run for the hills. But we don't. But it is something to really be uh, cognizant of, and don't minimize. Don't minimize this. It's real. It's dangerous. Fortunately, I think we still have enough of a secular society that we can, you know, manage it. But in order to do that, we have to stop feeding it. And that's what we're doing now. Right? We're allowing, like Facebook, which we're going to talk about next, we're allowing these groups to have this free reign of, of advertisement and
1: power uh, without checks. And that's just a dangerous thing to do. And I just want to stress one more time that if you are a person who thinks that we can live and let live with this kind of fundamentalist religion, you're wrong. You're just wrong. And. I've lived it. I've been through it. I've seen how dangerous this is. I've seen how much it can consume people's lives. And all you have to do is turn on the news and, and watch what these Christian crazies are doing. And it's no joke.
2: Well, it's the paradox of tolerance, right? I mean, if you want, if you want to have a tolerant society, you have to put
1: checks on the intolerant. It's as simple as that. You do. Yeah. And that's something that I think way too many liberals have a hard time understanding. And that is what makes us post liberals, because I refuse. I refuse to sit here and say that we should let Nazis have a right to speak. And that is a good segue into our next topic, which is the issue of Facebook, which has everything to do with Nazi speaking, as it turns out. So, all right, well, it's a total clusterfuck. And I want to mention here that I published an article last week in our journal which shares a title with this podcast episode, Facebook is the world's most destructive organization. The first thing I want to say is that this scandal is literally the least surprising thing any of us has ever heard, because we've all known for years that Facebook was despicable, at least since the Cambridge Analytica stuff, and and the fact that Trump's campaign was literally embedded in one of Facebook's data centers. So as I announced in my article, we've made a sort of executive decision here at The Radical Secular to drastically reduce our Facebook presence and eventually find a way to separate ourselves completely. The whole platform has just become utterly toxic and it's not really helping us grow anyway. So I've been kind of racking my brain to figure out what took me so long to finally <laughs> figure yeah. this out. I mean, Joe, what, what, you tell me, like how, how have you been feeling about Facebook? I, I've
2: been thinking the same thing. Like why did I stay with Facebook for so long when I knew better? at least at some level. And I think that I was thinking, you know, I am a very hopeful person and I am very stoked about technologies to help the world and help humanity. And when I you know, first saw the internet and social media, I'm like, man, this could be a great thing for humanity. You know? I thought so too. And, And that hope just lingered and lingered and lingered and kept me like saying, well, there's good things and bad things about it. And maybe the good things do outweigh the bad, but man, the bad the bad is bad for sure. But maybe there's really good things about too. I mean, ostensibly, I think that it's my opinion, it's of course I can't prove it, but I think that without Facebook, Trump would not have won the election. I fully agree with that. But I also think that's possible for Obama as well. Right? That Obama got a lot out of social media. So, you know, that that's that's what I was thinking, right? Okay, so I mean, the, we can't do it.
1: We can't do a controlled experiment to see, uh, well, let's lift Facebook out of our polity and then see what happens. We can't do that.
2: But anyway, I think the reason why I stayed with it so long is because of that lifelong hope of mine about, you know, the, these technologies being good for humanity. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, me too. And, and I also, it felt really good to reach people. I used to, I used to do this a lot with blogging and I blogged for many years. Uh, at Black Sun Journal, and I had hundreds of conversations with hundreds of people. And that was before social media kind of, it just sucked the life out of blogging. Nobody right. was coming to blogs anymore. So you kind of had to go over on there if you want to maintain that sort of interaction. Um, but let's talk about Facebook's sort of fall and recap what I said in the intro. There were three big strikes that occurred and all in a row. I was just like, boom. Uh, strike one was On Sunday, October 3rd, CBS 60 Minutes aired a segment with Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. Strike two, Facebook DNS info was wiped off the internet, causing a six-hour global outage. Strike three, Francis Haugen testified in front of a Senate committee hearing filled with bipartisan outrage. And that was just one, two, three, bang. I don't think those people knew what hit them. I think the lobbyists and, the, and all of their internal uh, PR people were just probably, they, did, they didn't right, know what yeah. happened. Yeah,
2: <laughs> what a day or week.
1: Yeah, what a bad Facebook. week for them. Yeah. <clears throat> wiped, okay, so it wiped something like $47 billion off their market cap or something ridiculous like that, which means that it took like you know $6 billion right out of Mark Zuckerberg's pocket immediately in one day. So, but it was really the revelations from the Facebook whistleblower that just kind of gripped me. I was spellbound because something just snapped at that point. And beyond all the political fuckery and the machinations that Zuckerberg has been involved with, it just hit home for the first time for me after that hearing, thinking about young teenage girls yeah. and their and their eating disorders yeah. and the ter- terrible impact that Instagram has had on their lives, in some cases leading to suicide. So, We took up this issue before, after the airing of the film Social Dilemma, and that was episode 15, which we called Fly-Ass Veeps because Fly landed on Mike Pence that week. (laughs) But uh, as I said in that episode, and I'm saying it now, again, solving the Facebook problem is entirely about demanding transparency and oversight over Facebook's algorithm. Breaking up the company is not going to work. Self-policing is not going to work. Giving Mark Zuckerberg another year or five years to solve this problem isn't going to work. And... What's become completely obvious is that Facebook is a clear and present danger to our nation and to the world, full stop. And because of its incredible power of 2.9 billion citizens, we have to start to look at it as kind of a hostile dictatorship with total informational control over its citizens. And that dictatorship is making it near impossible for democracies to function at all in its shadow. So before we get into that detail, though, I want to play uh, one last video, Joe, and then give you a chance to comment This video is from Don Winslow Films, and it's been viewed well over a million times, but it's the best encapsulation I've seen of not only the scope of the Facebook problems, but its clear and deliberate malfeasance.
3: How many young women have to die, Mark Zuckerberg? How many? How many?
1: Can you just say your name and pronounce it so nobody messes it up and they have it on tape? Sure, it's Mark Zuckerberg.
3: Facebook and Instagram knew their manipulations harmed children and did it anyway.
2: Facebook's own research says, as these young women begin to consume this eating disorder content, they get more and more depressed, and it actually makes them use the app more. I hit those times and I
0: think about how I don't want to be alive and my life isn't worth it.
3: Thirteen and a half
1: percent of teen girls say Instagram makes thoughts of suicide worse.
0: I wear black leggings because I feel they make me look small or skinny. My friend group at school, all the girls are so skinny, like it's crazy.
3: Facebook and Instagram target children. Facebook's internal research is aware that there are a variety of problems facing children on Instagram. They know that severe harm is happening to children. Facebook and Instagram manipulate engagement. Facebook has thousands of options that they show you. If they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. I just
2: want to kind of fit in the best that I can.
3: Facebook and Instagram employee bonuses are tied to meaningful social interaction. The incentives are misaligned, right? Like Facebook makes more money, when you consume more content. Higher click rates equal more ad revenue.
0: After more than a uh, decade of promises to do better, how is today's apology different? Did you know I was number one on Facebook? I and mean, I just found out I'm number one on Facebook.
3: I don't go on social media and scroll because it makes me hate my body and myself. Congressional action is needed. As you read this, children are dying because of Facebook and Instagram. They won't solve this crisis without your help. Think about that next time you sign on. And it just is not good for your mental health at all. How many young women have to die, Mark Zuckerberg? How many?
2: You know, just on this one issue alone, you know, never mind all all the rest of the issues we could talk about with Facebook, but with the, the damages causing girls, just that alone is just staggering. I mean, it's it's not just the, the girls that are dying, which is you know the tra- each one is a tragedy, but it's also the damage that it's causing psychologically and physiologically to 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 women over the course of their lives. Because you know, if you have severe anorexia, you know that that has lifelong impacts, and and it has lifelong you know psychological trauma. You know that uh, this is not small stuff just this issue alone should warrant some pretty hefty regulations on this industry just what this one at all are we serious about taking care of our children or not
1: i mean come on apparently not i mean if you look at if you look at the way uh the american attitude toward children right now it is yeah send them to school no masks i mean we don't care it's it's there is an all-out assault on uh, on any kind of g- a good society, and this is just a part of it. And again, like you said, if this was just if this was all Facebook was doing, that right there alone would be enough to warrant huge regulation, okay, and huge penalties. But I, I want to take a full inventory of how much other damage they've done, and that and and we're going to pay off this title, okay, <laughs> of the this, this show as the world's most destructive organization. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. This results, as you saw in the video, from Facebook's use of engagement based metrics to ramp up what it calls meaningful social interaction scores. And it's just what it sounds like. The more interactions a piece of content generates, the more people are going to see it, which prioritizes flashy, controversial, clickbaity content over everything else. It gets more eyeballs, spending more time on Facebook, making them more advertising revenue. And it also has a side effect of encouraging people who get more likes and shares to keep creating more of that same kind of content right. in an ever increasing feedback loop. And this is the point that actually Francis Haugen brought up is that they've done studies on what sorts of what sorts of feedbacks to content creators will cause them to generate more clickbaity content. And so when that stuff is rewarded, people produce it because it makes money. All right. Not not just for Facebook, but for the people themselves gains them more attention. So it ends up being a race to the bottom, not just in terms of this trivial lowbrow garbage that we all hate, but also false and misleading content that satisfies people's seemingly insatiable appetite to conform and reinforce lies that they already believe. And we talked about that beginning with Carl Sagan and the I Want to Believe X-Files shirts, right? Uh, We have anti-vax, we have Stop the Steal, we have the election fraud, conspiracy nonsense of all sorts. Is it any coincidence that All of a sudden, within the past five years, we now have to contend again with a raft of flat earthers and (laughs) 9-11 truthers and Sandy Hook truthers and QAnon itself. Facebook is almost entirely responsible for sending people down these rabbit holes. Now YouTube, to a lesser extent, maybe, but it's really Facebook that drives a lot of the engagement with the rabbit hole videos in the first place. So let's take an inventory of some of the disastrous results of this algorithmic policy Zuckerberg has personally endangered young girls with eating disorder content. He's refused to implement robust fact checking on his platform due to a concern that this would have an impact on Republican politicians and therefore reduce revenue. He's become a willing conduit for anti vax content long before COVID 19. He's used his terms of service to throw decorum violations on people to go after the Nazi hunters instead of the Nazis. All right, all kinds of liberals. That, that you know, and I know both have been banned from the platform for seven days, 30 days, or even longer for, you know, saying nasty things to Nazis, right? Zuckerberg has allowed rampant racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia on the platform. The 2018 algorithm revamp, which Francis Haugen talked about, it was designed to focus more on friends and family sharing to cut down on political anger but it had the side effect of drastically reducing the reach of legitimate news while doing nothing whatsoever to curtail far-right content. Um, I know personally the admins of multiple liberal pages with millions of followers who saw their content downranked to almost nothing after 2018. And some of those people, they used to make their living on Facebook publishing news and viral uh, liberal content, and they're gone. So uh, there was the Cambridge Analytica scandal that we all know about from 2015, 2016, where people's profiles were scraped to allow them to be served custom ads by the Trump campaign and other far-right actors in 2016. This was also implicated in Brexit. Uh, Zuckerberg made it possible for foreign actors to run cheap influence campaigns using trolls and bots to divide Americans. He did nothing to stop it. Zuckerberg allowed that Brexit misinformation, utter outright lies about the European Union and what that relationship meant to the UK. Zuckerberg <laughs> contributed to ethnic violence in Myanmar, Ethiopia, and elsewhere. He allowed Facebook events to be scheduled for actual stonings and lynchings, okay? There was no system in place and there were, there were, there were reports from all over the world of, of executions that were scheduled on Facebook events. Zuckerberg helped elect far-right extremists all over the world, and most recently, he has driven European political campaigns toward negative engagement to the point where Francis Haugen again said that these campaigns were begging Facebook, please do something about this, and, and they refused. So I want to repeat one more time that most, if not all, of these things were done in spite of Mark Zuckerberg having documented direct personal knowledge of the consequences and choosing profits over safety. Can you think of anything else I missed?
2: Well, yes, actually. Uh, you can look at some countries like Myanmar, for example, and, uh, and some of the ethnic cleansing and the, and the genocidal actions that happened there can be traced to what happened on Facebook. The military used Facebook for that. Uh, so you have this is a global phenomena. And in some places, it's even more dire than it is in Europe or the United States. Um, You know the 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 Rwanda genocide. You know what was spurred from radio when radio was first introduced and became popular, and it caused a frenzy of genocidal activity. It's these new technologies that they have a particular power to affect people's mind when they're new. And people don't have like an immune system against them yet. We haven't developed that yet. And so they are incredibly powerful. Even like when Martin Luther put up, uh, you know, the printing press and all that. That was, that just, that racked Europe for centuries. I mean, it's just like we have, we need, this lesson is not a new lesson. It's an old lesson, but it is hyped up now and supercharged because of the technologies we have. It's just so much more powerful.
1: Well, and that's the thing. I'm really glad you brought that up about the printing press because there are some historians who believe that we still have not yet fully internalized into our, our political system the impact of the Gutenberg press after 500 years. Right. And if, that, if we haven't done that, then we certainly have no idea where these internet technologies are going to lead us. And I think that, you know, a lot of people want to play this all off like it's just free speech. We shouldn't worry about it. Let people talk the, 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 cure for bad speech is more speech, all that stuff. It's garbage. Hold on.
2: I have to say something here. What is free about people,
1: uh, using algorithms to manage your speech? Well, there's nothing free. What about is it? free about that? There's nothing free about it. And that's, that's the point that I was, was coming around to. And, and I also made this <sighs> point in my, in my, in my article and my tweet storm that I did, where I said, basically, look, Billions of people are typing billions of messages all over the world, and one computer determines who sees all of them. And that computer is controlled by Mark Zuckerberg. And so the blame for all of this destruction stops on Mark Zuckerberg's desk. And as I pointed out in the article, the largest single shareholder in Facebook is the CEO and founder, Mark Zuckerberg, who holds 16.7% of all outstanding shares. But here's the key part. He owns a whopping 58% of Facebook's voting shares. Giving him sole and complete control over the company. So he's got, you know, if the company makes $40 billion a year and he has 16.7% of that, then he has 6.68 billion reasons every year to lie to the public about what he's doing. And I want to mention something that Francis Haugen said in front of the Senate committee, and that is that. Facebook relies almost exclusively on AI to flag sensitive content, which can't follow the nuance of language and memes that are constantly morphing and right. changing. And this is especially true in countries where uncommon languages are spoken. But even in countries with dominant languages, she said that Facebook is only catching sometimes less than 1% of problematic content. And in some cases, that number was higher, maybe in the low single digit percentages, but it's just dismal. So yeah. how most everything, most all of the filth is getting through. And this is the same with their ad approval system, which I didn't realize. One of the senators brought out three ads that were targeted toward children that were approved by Facebook. And one made reference to a Skittles party and showed an image of prescription drugs. Another one had a crude sexual reference. And a third was an ad showing an emaciated girl's midriff. And the ad was for an explicit anorexia page that actually used a slang term for anorexia right in the ad copy. And all of these ads were approved by Facebook to run with a targeting for young teenage girls. You want to comment on that? (laughs)
2: Incredible. It's criminal. I mean, they know better. It's like, it's like the, you know, Exxon having the reports about climate change in the 1970s and doing nothing about it because of profits. This is criminal. And we still
1: haven't brought Exxon to heel. I mean, no. <laughs> well, this is, you know, so, so uh, that, that's why my hope for regulation uh, on this thing is, is pretty slim because, I mean, they have highly paid lobbyists and they make a lot of money. They're, you know, they're not quite as big as fossil fuels, but they're pretty big. There's a lot of dark money. There's a lot of big tech dark money now. There yeah. is, unfortunately. Yeah, well, it's extremely lucrative and rounding out uh Facebook's chamber of horrors, there's there was over 600,000 accounts from kids under the age of 13 that were removed from the platform by Facebook because, you know, young kids aren't legally supposed to be on the platform. Facebook said they didn't know that they were there following the removals, but Francis Haugen said That Facebook has extremely robust methods using AI to determine the actual age of any child who comes on their platform way beyond needing any sort of ID or official age verification. So it strains all credibility that Facebook didn't know that there were 600,000 underage kids on the platform. And what's more than that, what's even worse, is that her documents showed a concerted effort on the part of Facebook to recruit more underage kids by encouraging them to hide their accounts from their parents. This was an active part of Facebook's marketing plan. All right. It's just unbelievable. And it really d- does draw parallels to the tobacco companies. Joe Camel, the sale of candy cigarettes. And doesn't this, Joe, I mean, you already said it, just smack of the big tobacco playbook. Have, have <laughs> we? Ha, why have we been so naive? What took us so long to break through the noise and have this become a huge scandal?
2: Well, we're in a deregulatory environment, right? And regulations have taken a big hit at, the whole concept of regulation is now distrusted by a large percentage of people, including a lot of people in charge and power. right? And so the, I think that to try to get new regulations today is very difficult, much more so than it was a few, you know, a few decades ago, even uh, certainly before Reagan. It, it's difficult to do. Uh, You know the opposite tends to happen. Things get deregulated more now, and so that's a big reason for it. I think the other reason is like you know this: we have to challenge the whole notion, the whole logic behind our capitalist system. We do, right? Profits should not be you know the a priori you know goal for everything. Commodification is not the ultimate you know purpose of society.
1: Yeah. Well, the incentives have just been misaligned. And what was interesting in this hearing is that uh, I believe it's Edward Markey. I think that's his name. He is the senator who passed the Children's Television Protection Act back in in 1990. Okay. And this is, again, I get really pissed off because someone like that, there are people who would like to see him uh, out of the Senate through term limits. And here he is on this committee trying to get Facebook regulated. And he already did this. 30 years ago to protect children now he's here 30 years later doing it again and i ha- i he's a fucking hero as far as i'm concerned
2: yeah yeah you know if you were to document all this and write a book about it like a fiction or something and bring it back 20 years it would get shelved in the uh you know a dystopia you know, future section. This is, this is bad. I mean, we, we are kind of numb to it now. We don't realize how destructive and corrosive this kind of thing has been to our society and others, all societies around the world virtually. It's really corrosive. And we have to do something. Because it really it, it infiltrates everything from the climate change issue to pandemics to, to you know to the rise of right wing nationalism to all of that. All of that is enforced and augmented by this bullshit.
1: Well, you know, it's it's what what's happened is that we have turned into a much more predatory society. And people yeah. who like growing up when I grew up, I mean, this just wouldn't have been allowed. People would have been, you know, this would have been they would have put a stop no. to it. And, and they did put a stop to it. With, you know The television industry was, extremely, was as powerful in its day as the social media industry is today. And they were regulated. And we need to be able to figure out how to get that done. Um, all right, well, wrapping up for our final segment on this topic, I want to talk about what we are doing about Facebook at The Radical Secular. And we have decided to dramatically reduce our dependence on Facebook. We're not going to immediately shut down our page or quit posting our videos. But realistically, Facebook hasn't been helping us publicize our podcast much at all. We're caught up in the same bait and switch as every other Facebook page, which is that platform is only there for Facebook to sell advertising. It's not there to help us. It's not there to help you. It's not there to help promote causes or activism or truth or anything else. You can have thousands of followers, but if you don't pay to distribute your content, only a small handful ever see any posts. And that's especially true for long form content like we WePost. Uh, I'm friends with a guy who runs the Science, Skepticism and Critical Thinking page. It has over 100,000 followers. He shared with me some of his engagement metrics. And if he doesn't pay to promote a post, it only reaches a few hundred people out of 100,000. He says that he's reaching fewer people now than he was when the page first launched back in 2012. He used to have only 1,000 followers in the early days and he used to get substantially more engagement back then. He would reach sometimes almost all of his followers. And a lot of this has to do with that 2018 algorithm change, which it's a black box. We don't know what happened, but we all know that now it's the same bait and switch uh, that killed these big liberal news pages, right? doesn't matter who you are, you're being downranked and reduced and the clickbait and garbage content is being, is what that's what gets distributed and the people who pay. So, They would like you to pay a hundred dollars or more for each post just to get your own audience to see it. And even then only a fraction of them would ever see it. Yeah. So we're all done with that. We're going to work on moving our total presence over to Twitter, YouTube and work on growing our audience there. Cause the more I think about it, the more the entire platform has been a scam for anyone whose name isn't Mark Zuckerberg. So, (laughs) you know, I don't know
2: what's up with that guy. You know, frankly, I don't care, but it has to stop. I don't know if he's, a, he's some kind of libertarian kook or uh, what the hell is going, going on with him or whether it is 100% purely about profit, but this has to stop. And we can stop it as individuals as well as the government can. We have to take a stand as citizens. It's simple as that.
1: Well, here's what I think. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about Mark Zuckerberg. Never met the guy. Don't have never talked to anybody who's met him. But the fact of the matter is power causes brain damage. It causes you to not be able to think out of your own bubble and to not be able to consider the ramifications of your actions on anyone else. I watched this happen with my parents. They had a tremendous amount of power within their little circle of their organization, and and they became completely corrupt. And we've seen that. You see this. This is not a new concept. Absolute power (laughs) corrupts. Absolutely, checks and balances. Right. That's again constitution. Why did they put that in there? Lived experience. Yeah and this is the interesting thing that Frances Haugen was saying is she was basically saying look all this does is drive short-term profits at the at this with this tremendous you know externalized cost of harm and she's saying that with the right kind of regulation things would be even better for Mark Zuckerberg 5 10 years down the line you'd have a socially responsible well-liked company instead of this hated juggernaut that's just is insensitive to everything so
2: I have a hard time looking at the guy at this point. I can look at his picture, and I, I I don't even want to look at him.
1: I think he's the most dangerous person in the world. Like like I I and I think we've paid that off in this segment.
2: <laughs> and you know I know it's not just about one person, but in this case, it is a fiefdom.
1: It really is fifty eight percent. He yeah. is the law at Facebook. He is the law. He is, he is the Mad King of two point eight billion people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I've made the decision to reduce my posting on my personal page. Depending on how things go, I may close my account altogether. And my problem is, like everyone else, there's 15 years worth of social and business contacts. I've got to get everyone notice before closing it down. I have to find, you know, we've switched our our radical secular chat over to Slack (laughs) because we just don't want any part of it. And this does not mean that we're going to completely stop posting on Facebook and we're still going to keep our videos available for the foreseeable future unless some other horrible shoe drops but here's what in summary i think i would need to see facebook do in order to get back into the good citizenship club where i would consider you know wanting to use that platform again and the first one is taking responsibility take responsibility for what they've done admit what they've done because Zuckerberg as soon as this whistleblower hearing happened he posted this petulant blog post just denying everything and saying that it was all false and it was all lies. Who does that sound like? (laughs) Yeah, Sounds just like Trump. So he would need to disclose the algorithm and all internal research to outside independent researchers so that people could see what the hell this fucking black box was doing. Uh, He would need to fully cooperate with regulators instead of trying to throw up all sorts of legal roadblocks, which you can be guaranteed he's going to do. He would have to implement rigorous fact checking across all platforms. You know, fact-checking, it's like I don't care, you know, pick your bureau of fact-checkers. Get together all the world's top universities. Get to world get the, you know, the world's top news bureaus, whatever. Figure it out. We can we can do fact-checking. It's not impossible. Uh we would need to he would need to deplatform ethnic violence, and that means across the board in every country in the world. If you can't stop ethnic violence from being organized on your platform, don't operate there. Right, right. Well, I think there's also a,
2: a, a far deeper sense to this, and that is that Facebook is really become a public square, and it's not a public square. It's a corporation with, with very secretive, you know, practices and these algorithms and so forth. And how can you have a democracy that way, right? You can't. I mean, the, 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 having the, the, this common space, a common good, public, the public square. If you read about democracy read about it read about the founding fathers what they said about it read about the the, the philosophers of the uh you know age of reason were saying about it it is completely reliant on that on yeah. that idea and so if i in my mind i think you know social media should be a public good and it should be not run by corporations but then again i'm a little bit radical in that regard
1: but no it's not that's not how is that radical how is that at all radical, okay? Because well, compared but, to today. But what's your, okay, at the very beginning of the show, when we were talking Good about point, China, though. we are talking about China, yeah. and, and, and we are talking about how China is able to manufacture its public opinion, right? Well, exactly what is different about what Mark Zuckerberg is doing? Right, exactly. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing is different. He's, he will determine when I type something into Facebook or you type something into Facebook, He will determine exactly who does and does not see that content. That's not free speech. Uh, Could you imagine like
2: in in the 1780s in Boston common, right? The British saying, oh, well, we're going to have a corporation run the commons. And so if you want to actually go there, you have to like go through this corporation and they're going to decide what you can say, what you can't say, who you can talk to. And that's how we're going to have our public
1: space. Yeah. And utterly insane. It's, it, would, it would just be laughed out of the room if you said something like right. that. right
2: they were just pissed off about t tax right <laughs> i mean it, it is such an abrogation of our rights really okay. at, at a deep level at, well, at, a, at, a, at a level that we can't obviously
1: see all, all the time but it really is because we don't know what's Talk going on free speech yeah we, we have no idea what's going on this guy just oh. comes out of harvard and Suddenly, within within, you know, 15 years, he's deciding what everybody can and can't say. Right. And I, I know I post something, you post something. Who, who gets to read it? We don't decide. We have that. no idea. We have right. no idea. And, and we can't even we don't even have access to our own audience. No. So. All right. Well, the final the final step that he would need to take other than fixing all that stuff, <laughs> which is a tall <laughs> order, is ensuring safety for women and girls. That yes. is like, it, that should not be last on the list. Damn it. <laughs> and I'm also, I mean,
2: listen, it's also destructive for boys too. It, it may be not as severely, but it, it is. It really is.
1: Well, the boys are getting a different kind of toxic content. They're getting toxic yeah. masculinity content.
2: Yeah. Right. So, and, even, and also body image stuff too.
1: Right. Right. A different kind of body image. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that is our show for today. We will see you all out there everywhere on the web except at the Zuckerfuck's Dr. Evil House of Horrors. Because we, we want to be good citizens and we therefore absolutely refuse to contribute any more support to a person who has now become global public enemy number one. Do you have any final thoughts, Joe? I think you said it well. Okay, well, that is our show for today. Remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, support us on Patreon and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular.
0: The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defo, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team: Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti.